Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of an Advent series. Hey, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 as we finish up our teaching series on Advent. Luke chapter 1. If you are new to Advent, it is based on an ancient Latin word. If you are extra nerd level, ad is a preposition meaning to, and vent is a verb meaning to come. At Advent, we remember that God came to us in Jesus and that God will come again. We look back to Jesus' first coming, and as we've said over the last few weeks in the history of the church calendar, Advent was more about how we look forward to Jesus' second coming. And at Advent, we get in touch with the felt experience of living in the in-between. On that note, please stand with me for the reading of scripture as more than just a first century biography, but as the word of God. Luke chapter one, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, up in the north of Israel, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Now that detail right there is important because in the first century, all Israelites were waiting for a descendant of David to come as the Messiah and usher in the kingdom of God. Israel at the time was under the oppression of the Roman Empire. But hundreds of years before, God made a promise to King David that one of his sons or descendants would do that job. And Israel was literally waiting on pins and needles for God's promise to come to pass. Here is a descendant of David. The virgin's name, though, was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, or Yeshua in Hebrew, meaning Yahweh saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end, meaning you are about to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Not only am I a poor teenage girl living up in an off-the-beaten-path village in the north, but I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son, not only of David, but the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Let me read that again. No word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. 
may your word to me be fulfilled, or that can be translated, may it be to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. Now, before you sit down, turn over to the right to Luke chapter 24. From the beginning of Luke's gospel to the end, to the story right before the birth of Jesus, to the story right after the birth of Jesus. Take a look look at Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Always pay attention to details in the biblical text. This is before a word processor and Gutenberg. Every word, it's all about real estate. Details matter. Note that detail about seven miles. Why is that in the text? Well, one reason is it could be because Bethlehem is also just about seven miles from Jerusalem. When I was doing graduate work, and I remember I went on a run one day. I just thought I should run the journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem just to be able to brag about it one day in a sermon. This is my moment. I've been waiting a decade. Here I am. Done, right? Never mind how slow I was, but I ran it, right? But it's just about seven miles. Bethlehem is to the south. Emmaus is to the west. This could be a literary clue from the writer Luke that we are about to read a bookend story, and we're to read this story side by side with the one at the beginning. Keep reading. Then they were talking with each other about everything that had just happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what is it that you are discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. Jesus, so they thought, had just died. Can you imagine the feeling of disappointment and disillusionment? One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. I imagine a little smirk in Jesus, or at least a twinkle in his eye. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. Note, prophet, not king. Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, meaning we, were, we had hoped that he was the Messiah, that he was the one who was going to save us and deliver us from Rome. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Take a seat. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that our business would make it through. We had hoped that we would not lose our job or that if we did, we would have another one by now or even a better one. We had hoped that our nation would come together rather than fracture apart. We had hoped that injustice would end generations ago. We had hoped 
that our marriage would last. We had hoped that our children would grow up to follow Jesus. We had hoped that we would find a spouse long before now. We had hoped for Christmas with our family, at least that. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The name for that feeling of letdown and confusion and angst and sadness is disappointment. Today we come to the final theme of Advent, which is hope. We tend to think of the opposite of hope as despair, and at least my mind goes straight to the suicide rate in Oregon or the rapid uptick in clinical depression. But for most people, the struggle is not with full-on despair, but down a notch or two with disappointment. Yes, there are moments of despair. A fascinating survey came out in June saying that one-third of millennials in June had suicidal thoughts. But that's not normal for most people. What is normal for a lot of people is disappointment. I was listening to a group of sociologists recently who said the primary American emotion is disappointment. That feeling of letdown. Part of that is what sociologists call the myth of progress. We Americans, in particular if we are from the middle class, expect life to be kind of up and to the right what my therapist calls the gospel of upward mobility, which is the gospel of America, and is the cause of a hidden trauma in American life. Plus, in the secular view of reality, suffering has no role in the meaning or purpose of life. There is no meaning or purpose to life other than survival and pleasure, and it has no role in either of that. So when you come up against a global pandemic or death or unemployment, we have no meaning to assign to our pain. It's just pain, a blockage to what we think life is all about. Sociologists also use the formula happiness equals reality minus expectations. Does that cut deep? It does for me. It's ironic, but when you expect a life of ease and upward mobility, life is very hard because at some point it is not up and to the right. It's full of suffering and setback, no matter how much money or education or you fill in the blank you have. So many of the things that we have put our hope in have let us down. We put our hope in the myth of progress, but very few of us feel up and to the right this December over last. We put our hope in politics, the quasi-religion of our secular age, to solve the problem or problems of the human condition, but it's just a mess. We put our hope in secular humanism and human altruism to end injustice, in particular racial injustice, in our nation that goes back hundreds of years, but it cannot deliver on its promise generation after generation. We put our hope in the church, but it turns out that we too are human and fragile and deeply in need of the mercy of God. So a lot of us are feeling a little or a lot of disappointment. I am, are you? It's okay to admit that. But what if disappointment is a good thing? What if there's a secret gift in it? What if disappointment is an emotional signal from our body that our hope was set on the wrong object? 
After all, hope must have an object. It must have something or someone to attach itself to, to aim at a better future over the horizon. What if disappointment comes with a gentle invitation from the Spirit to recenter our hope, that inner orientation of our heart toward the future and our energy for the present onto God? A synonym for disappointment is disillusionment, which I think of as a bad thing, but if you parse out that word disillusionment, that's not all bad. To be disillusioned is to be disavowed of our illusions, to face reality. Remember, the enemy's specialty is illusion. Jesus' specialty is truth. You shall know the truth and it will set you free. What if when we feel disillusionment, rather than asking, why has God let me down, we were to ask, where was I living in an illusion? Where was my hope set on the wrong object? Now, I wish it was as simple as saying that as followers of Jesus, our hope is in Jesus and he will never let us down. Come on, Ziggy, come on up. You're never gonna let, never gonna let us down. Every time we sing that, I think as a pastor here, I really should stop that song. I agree with it with about 19 like asterisks at the bottom of that statement, you know? Man, are we just setting people up? Ziggy, let's chat about that later, you know? <laughs> I wish it was as simple as, hey, our hope is in Jesus. He will never let us down. But let's be honest, not religious for a moment. Do you ever feel, at least at an emotional level, like God has let you down? It's not a trick question. I sure do, I sure have at times. I have felt let down by God. Even when our hope is in Jesus, we often relate to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We had hoped that Jesus would, we fill in the blank, do this or do that, show up in this way or show up in that way. Note that Luke does not name the second disciple most likely in a literary move designed to prompt the reader to imagine himself or herself as the anonymous disciple. Anonymous in that, that unnamed disciple is you, and it's me. All of us come to the point in our road where we just feel let down by Jesus. This is why so many first century Jews rejected Jesus and refused to believe that he was the Messiah because Jesus let them down. He did not rally an army. He did not defeat Rome. He did not even campaign for lower taxes in the name of justice in an era where some historians argue the tax rate was as high as 80 to 90%, and the vast majority of Israel was living in slavery, living hand to mouth on their own land due to Roman oppression. And yet Jesus even said barely anything about politics. Jesus came and went, and Rome was still in power, was still oppressor and oppressed. Because of that, many rejected Jesus. If this is what the king is, if this is what the kingdom is, no, that's not for me. What we need then and now is what Paul in Romans 5, a Jew who did accept Jesus and come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, what 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 we need is what he calls a hope that does not disappoint us. That's what we need, a hope that does not disappoint us, which raises the question, what exactly is hope? 
at least that kind of a hope that does not disappoint us, and the hope of Advent. Well, first we need to distinguish from how the word hope is used in American and how it's used in scripture, because it's not the same, same word, different idea. In American, hope means a few things. It can mean wishful thinking, as in, I hope it's sunny today. Did you think that when you woke up? I hope it snows on Christmas. I hope I get an end of year bonus, whatever. Or it can mean positivity, a kind of optimism. We, we Americans, we love our optimism, not Portlanders, but whatever. We love our pessimism and cynicism, whatever, <laughs> other teaching. But it, it can mean a kind of optimism that, hey, the best is yet to come, onward and upward. There's that up and to the right mindset. It can mean statistics and probability, just being like it, the math in our head. I'm hopeful that we will make budget by end of fourth quarter, or I'm hopeful that I can go on vacation by June. Now, none of that is bad, though some of it is based on fantasy, not on reality, but it's not bad. But that's not the way hope is used in scripture. Here's my working definition of hope in scripture. The expectation of coming good based on the person and promises of God. Hope is a kind of emotional energy that is based in the future but is fuel for the present. Here's Eugene Peterson, quote, hope is not about the future. Hope is about the present. It obviously has to do with the future, but it is a virtue, note that, which is cultivated in the present. It fills the present with energy. It connects the two comings of Jesus so that we are now participant in them. We're not just remembering the one and believing in the other. We are participating in the continuity of the comings. Meaning hope, like Advent, is all about the now and the not yet. Now, all humans, religious or not, followers of Jesus or Buddhist or secular or whatever, all humans are hope-based creatures. Unlike the animals, survival is not enough for us, in particular in a time of suffering. We need hope that things will get better, that good will come into our life through the pain. As Martin Luther once said, everything that is done in the world is done by hope. Everything, every business that is started, every vow to a marriage that is made, every friendship that you kindle, every act you do at your job, everything that is done in the world is done by hope. The question is not, do you hope? We can't help but hope. The question is, what do you put your hope in? As I said before, hope must have an object, something to attach to. As followers of Jesus, our hope is not based in a generic sense of optimism, nor, it is, in, nor is it in the stability of Western civilization or America or a rising standard of living or a political vision. Not that any of that stuff is bad per se, not that it's bad to desire that or want that or even have a set of expectations for that that's based in reality. It's just that all of that stuff can and often will let us down. It will disappoint us and it will disillusion us. Our hope must transcend that. It's okay to want that. It's okay to even expect it. But our hope must go beyond that. Our sense of emotional energy for why we do what we do, why we live in the way of Jesus must persevere through the letdown of hopes this side of the return of Jesus. So let me sketch out a biblical theology of hope in four very simple parts. To say our hope is in God is to say four things. Number one, our hope is that Jesus will return to make all things new. 
that in the language of Revelation, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. How does that sound? Or in the language of Isaiah, gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Or Paul, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That is the hope of Jesus. Many in our generation, and myself included here, have lost sight of the hope of the second coming and what theologians call an over-realized eschatology, meaning an emphasis on the now over the not yet or the hope of what God will do in this life over the hope of what God will do in the life to come. Few Gen X and below Christians, at least in America, think on a regular basis about the hope of Jesus' return and live as if it was eminent in their mind's eye. That is not a critique of other Christians and other churches. That is a loving critique of myself and all of you. But hope that does not look over the horizon to the life to come is not Christian hope at all. It's more like secular humanism with a twist of Christianity for the middle class. As Paul put it, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. The writings in the New Testament are just saturated with the hope of Jesus' return. If you read through the New Testament, and I would encourage you to get our reading plan or one from the Bible Project or whatever, the hope of Jesus' return is literally on every single page. It's just a, it's just a radical, different vision of hope. Unlike our secular world that has put its hope on politics and science and technology and a rising standard of living and even psychedelic mushrooms, anything other than Jesus, to usher in the kingdom without the king, a social order of peace and prosperity with no disease or disunity, but without Jesus as king, where we're all free to basically do whatever we want. And as much as we, as followers of Jesus, laud and link arms with human effort, any human effort to alleviate suffering, those things, as good as they are, cannot bring about the kingdom. Humanity cannot self-save. We can't save the world or even ourselves because we need to be saved from the world and from ourselves. And no politician or policy or app or gadget or pill can do that. On a regular basis, people inject a kind of messianic hope into a policy or a politician or a medical breakthrough or a technology and in the end are let down. The gospel of Jesus is that the government will be on his shoulders, end quote. Not ours, his. God is the subject of the verb in human history. God is the one who will bring the kingdom to pass. Do we have a role to play? Yes, we partner with God but it's happening with or without us. Aslan is on the move, as C.S. Lewis put it. God is at work. That is the hope. God will return and make all things new. Second, and that's the, that's the top tier. That's the, there's, there's an order of importance here. That's at the top. Second, in the meantime, Jesus is with us in our suffering. 
Whatever comes or does not come, we are not alone. It's the language of Christmas that he is Emmanuel. That song was beautiful. Ziggy, did you write that? That was, sounded like a Ziggy to me. That was beautiful. Emmanuel or God with us. As John Wesley put it, as he lay dying, best of all, God is with us. Here's a man who literally like is a saint in church history, literally a worldwide name who saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And what did he say on his deathbed? You know what the best thing of all of it is? I'm not alone. God is with me. Do you believe that? Do I? The best thing in life is that through Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and by the spirit that came in the wake of him, we all, as followers of Jesus, have access to the Father and to his love. We get to participate in the inner life of the Trinity through prayer and community, in the here and now, as we wait to step into God's presence forever. We get to wake up in the morning and find a quiet place if such a thing exists, if you have little children or roommates. And we get to just look at God looking at us in love and let his love heal the deepest part of our wound, set free the deepest slavery to our attachments to other things and right the deepest sense of our hope that is on the wrong object and let his compassion wash over the mess and the fragility and the humanity of our spirit. And nothing, no suffering, no failure, no recession, no family that isn't what you want it to be, not the death even of somebody that you love, nothing can take away our access to God's loving presence. Nothing can stop us from right after this walking out the door, or right here now, just living in awareness of and connection to the loving presence of God, the gentle, compassionate goodness of God by the Spirit. All of that is available. All we have to do is stop and pray. All we have to do is just stop and turn our mind and our heart to God. He's with us no matter what happens. It's okay. Third, our hope is that Jesus will use our suffering to form us into people of love in order to co-rule with him in the world to come. The hope of Advent is not just about what happens when all our dreams come true, but about what happens when our worst nightmares come true too. That even then, when your suffering is at its most acute, it's not in vain. Now to clarify, because I think this is one of the great false teachings of our age, just my opinion, I am not a theological determinist. I don't think that, quote, everything happens for a reason. I think that's a lie. I think a lot of suffering is senseless. I don't think that, and I hesitate to say this on the internet, but I don't think that God is in control in the sense that he has a secret plan behind all evil in my life. I don't think he, quote, allows evil. You notice I never use that language because that's just code for most people to he, not really what he wants, but he kind of wants it and he has a secret plan. So it's like he's the gatekeeper and he will only let into your life what he thinks is good for you. I think he allows free will because God is love 
and God is relationship, and love cannot exist outside of relationship, and love cannot exist without choice. And so in the universe that God has chosen to actualize, that the creator has created, where love is the ultimate value, love cannot exist without freedom. And where there is freedom, there is the potential for love, but there is also the potential for sin, which means there is suffering and pain. God allows freedom because God wants love, and the result is love, and the result is pain and suffering. But all followers of Jesus, lots of very smart, God-like followers of Jesus would disagree with what I just said. They're wrong, but they would disagree. No, I'm kidding. My point is, all followers of Jesus from across the theological spectrum, from a seven-point Calvinist to an open theist, or more moderate, from a five-point Calvinist to an Arminian or whatever, all of them agree that wherever suffering comes from, it goes to good if we open it to God. If my reading of the New Testament is right and the meaning of life is to become a person of agape, that life itself is a kind of school of agape where we learn under Rabbi Jesus's tutelage how to grow and mature into people of love who have the character and the capacity to co-rule over the kingdom of God with Jesus upon his return, to take power, not to oppress the weak, but to leverage it for the good of all. If that is the meaning and purpose of life, and if love, as defined by Jesus, who said greater love as no one than this to lay down their life for their friends, if love is not tolerance, you do you, that's actually a very unloving and narcissistic mentality, or if love is not desire, I love you, meaning I want you, or often in our city, I want to have sex with you, if love is not even warm affection, though that is a part of it, but if love is to desire the good of another ahead of your own, no matter the cost or the sacrifice to yourself, then that means that love itself is a form of self-giving. It is the opposite of narcissism, which is why most of what we call romantic love isn't love at all, it's ego and it's lust. It's why the divorce rate is through the roof. Love then is giving up your seat on the bus. It's getting up in the middle of the night to comfort your child after a bad dream. It's giving away your hard-earned money to those that need it more than you. It's taking on a project for a colleague at work who's stressed out. It's inviting somebody into your home when you'd rather just have it be your family, but they're alone this holiday. If love is self-giving, if that's what love is, then listen, all self-giving is a form of suffering. All of it. Ergo, learning how to suffer well is learning how to love. And the primary way we become people of agape is by suffering. Not by sermons. Not by reading books. I read a lot of books. I'm a tiny bit behind on my quota because of 2020, right? Normally about 120, 130 this year. I'm just over 100. I feel really bad about it. But guess what? They have not made me more loving good inspiration, good t teaching and technique, I'm grateful. You don't learn, you don't become a person of love by hearing a sermon or reading a book or even by going to church. Though those things can become spiritual disciplines and that they can open us up to the spirit of God. But the main way that most of us become loving is through suffering. And not just through suffering, but as Jean-Pierre de Cassade put it, 17th century Jesuit, brilliant mind, in suffering lovingly. 
That is to say, with sweetness and consolation, those things that often cause weariness and disgust. In this consists sanctity. That is our hope, my friends. Not that nothing bad will happen to us because we're Christians, or that if it does, there's a secret plan behind all of it, but that no matter what happens to us, whether it's from God or from Satan or just our own stupid decisions or just chaos in a world with a global pandemic, whatever happens, we're not alone. God is with us. And if we give him our suffering and our pain and our disappointment and our letdown, God will take all of that and by his spirit, give us back transformation. He will grow and mature us into people of love and of joy and of peace and of hope, the kind of people who can one day rule over the kingdom of God with him. He will work all things together for the good of those who are called to his purpose. Finally, number four, our hope is that Jesus will bring forward good from that future world into the mess of this one. So I need to say this. I have to say this last, but I do need to say it. Our hope is not just for the life to come. It is also for this life. God is with us, and the Father is generous and good and all-powerful. Remember, the kingdom is now, and it's not yet. Jesus can and does bring forward good from the age to come into what the New Testament calls this present evil age, from heaven to earth. N.T. Wright wants to find heaven as the place where God is storing the earth's future. God can and does bring forward a sneak peek of our coming life together. Life is full of surprise goodness from God. Just keep your eyes open. Just watch, slow down, unhurry, pay attention. The surprise goodness of God is all around us. Practice gratitude. I'm feeling so much gratitude as we come to the end of the year for things that from all of my life I took for granted. Take note of how much goodness is already in your life. This is our hope, my friends, that Jesus will return, that we're not alone, that our suffering is not in vain. It has the potential to shape us into our deepest desire, which is to become people of love, and that good will come to us in this life and the next from the hand of God. The invitation of Advent this year especially, but every year, is to set our hope back onto its rightful place in Jesus. As my teaching mentor, Mike Erie, said it, Advent is not simply a season to await the coming of Christmas. Much less is it a simply a reenactment of ancient hopes long ago fulfilled. It is a time to renew and enlarge our hopes. I'm not asking you to have less hope today. I'm asking you to have more, just on the right object to tap into the deepest hopes of the human race for the age that is to come, and then to prepare a mystery visible only to the eyes of faith, the fact that in this humble birth so long ago, the coming age has begun. But to end, there are times when, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the emotional energy runs out of fuel. There are times when life doesn't make sense, when the math doesn't add up, when we can't draw a line between our suffering and God's plan or purpose, when we're scared, when we're angry even at God or at ourself, Advent is a time for a confused heart. It's a time for asking the hard questions and facing the dark emotions. That's one of the reasons that when the church calendar was put together, Advent was tied 
to the winter solstice, to the darkest time of the year. It's not when Jesus was born. Shepherds are not out in their fields at night in December. Just do the math. They're out in the yielding season, which is in the spring. It was tied for a lot of different reasons, but one was because that in an agrarian society, pre-modern society, where people were much more in touch with the length of the day and the temperature outside and the yield of the field, that was the best time of year to put your body in alignment with the story of Advent. Fleming Rutledge, again, in her masterful work on Advent, writes this, religious systems that ignore the dark side of life are fundamentally dishonest. That's just as true as Christian religious systems as other ones. In Advent, we don't pretend, as I once thought, that we are in the darkness before the birth of Christ. Rather, we take a good hard look at the darkness we are now facing and defining it honestly so that we will understand with utmost clarity that our great and only hope is in Jesus' final victorious coming. Take that, Fleming. In all honesty, I'm terrible at waiting in the dark for God. Terrible. I prefer the light, sunny day. I'm from California. Nothing to hope for because everything is great. I don't want to have, I don't want to have to hope. I want to just wake up in the morning and enjoy my life. I'd rather feel in control over my life and my destiny. I would rather feel up and to the right. I would rather plan out my own good than have to wait on God for his. When COVID hit, I became painfully aware of how weak my hope muscle was. In all honesty, I became aware that I'm not a hopeful person, as embarrassing as that is to admit. And I felt a prompt from the Spirit early in the year to do some research on hope, just a simple word study and a little reading, not for a teaching, but just for me. In that research, I came across a theological dictionary of the New Testament that said hope has three elements, and I've been sitting with this all year. One, expectation of the future. Good will come from God. Two, trust in God. And three, the patience of waiting. I was like, check, kind of, sort of, check, no check. <laughs> Expectation of the future, a little bit. Trust, uh, the patience of waiting. This is where hope, like joy last week, and peace and love is more than just a feeling or even an emotional energy. It is a muscle we exercise. It is a virtue we develop. It is a choice we make as an act of obedience to our rabbi and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. Let me close with this line from Romans 4 about Abraham, that icon of hope in Scripture. Been his line, this line from Romans has been haunting my imagination all week long. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. 
Are you against all hope right now? Is your life, is your income, is your family, is your immune system, is your future against all hope? Against all hope, in hope, believe in God, trust in God, and wait in God and for God in patience. May you, may I, may we as a church, may we have the faith of Abraham that is unshakable. Abraham, to whom God made the promise that through Abraham's descendants, he would come and save and rescue the world. And the faith of Mary, who was one of Abraham's descendants, to whom God fulfilled the promise that he made hundreds of years before to her ancestor Abraham. And he came through her own body to save and rescue the world. That Mary who said, I am the Lord's servant. Here I am. May it be to me according to your word. Here I am. Have your way. I wait on you in hope. I had hoped that my prayer would be answered yes, not no, or worse, silent. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. I had hoped that the suffering and the pain would go away. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. And as Paul said later in Romans, may the God of hope, this is my prayer for you, church, as we move into Christmas week, May the God of hope, this is my prayer for me, by the way. So let's read this out loud together. I will pray this over you, you over me. A couple of thousand in my direction, one in yours. Under the authority of the Holy Spirit, please God, as an elder of our church, let's pray this out loud. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way, a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All of our resources are completely free thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for today's episode goes to Pat from Modesto, California, John from Minneapolis, Minnesota, Scott from Waco, Texas, Nick from Laguna de Gal, California, and Tahisha from Arlington, Virginia. Thank you all so much. To join the circle or to learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org.